Hey, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, I always enjoy the opportunity to come over here and be with you at Carmel. Uh, I realize that you see my face with some regularity, but some of you have probably never met my family before. Uh, I wanted to show you a picture of them this morning, and uh, yeah, you can celebrate that. It's a good picture. And if you want to look at them in real life, they're actually sitting over here. So go over there and look at them after the service if you want to. But uh, just to introduce everybody, my wife Beth Ann's with me there, my daughter Caitlin on uh, the closest to me, and then Aubrey and Jayla, and then my son Josiah. And uh, This picture is actually already a couple of years old. It was taken in the lobby uh, at Noblesville, I think maybe on Mother's Day is when that was taken. I think you guys did a photo booth over here too, but this is one of my favorite family photos, and uh, I always go back to that one. It makes me smile. Now, for those of you who don't know, this might come to you as a shock but one of my kids is adopted, and um, it is not one of my girls. It's actually my son, Josiah, and so I want to share with you a little bit of the story about how Joe became my son, and I realize that there are some of you here today who could tell this story as, as well as I can because you walked with, those, uh, with us in those days, but uh, if you don't know, 2009 was a very pivotal year for me. Uh, it was a year when the, the Lord was doing some things in my life and in my heart that, quite honestly, I don't have adequate words to describe. Uh, so I'll just suffice to say that, uh, that those were days when he was drawing me to deeper levels of trust and integrity and discipleship. And maybe some of you have had seasons like that in walking with the Lord where he was just calling you uh, deeper. Well, for me, it had a lot to do with control. And the Lord was revealing to me that while I, I spoke nice words of trusting him, uh, that my life was showing something else. And my trust was really in myself. Uh, I had my own plan for my life. I had my own plan for my family, and, and I was following that plan. So uh, what you need to know is that uh, after our third daughter, Jayla, was born, um, I took care of things, so to speak, to make sure that we would be done having children. And uh, we weren't going to be having any more kids. I was ready for the days of sleeping through the night and self-sufficiency. But in July of 2009, in the midst of this process of, of the Lord uh, asking for control of my life, I'll never forget this. I was out mowing my grass and uh, had my earphones in. I was listening to a podcast or some music or something. But, but in the midst of all of the noise of the mower and the earphones and everything, the Lord just spoke so clearly to me. And, uh, and he just said, get ready. And, uh, and I didn't know what that meant. I went inside and I told Beth Ann, the Lord just told me to get ready. And she kind of deflated and she said, I'm so glad he told you that because he's been telling me that for two weeks. And, uh, and so there again, she was the first to know. But uh, we, I asked her, you know, do you know what it means? Do you know what we're supposed to get ready for? And she didn't. And so we just started praying, Lord, get us ready. Whatever it is that you have in store for us, you prepare us, you get our hearts ready for it. Well, that was July of 2009, and if you fast forward to September, uh, we learned on the Sunday of Labor Day weekend that my wife's youngest sister, who is adopted from Haiti, uh, we found out that she was pregnant, and she wasn't married, uh, she wasn't sure who the father was, and she thought she was about six months along. Well, that was, uh, that was Sunday that she told my wife. On Monday, she confessed this to her parents, and on Tuesday, she began having complications. And uh, they took her to the hospital where the doctors told her, you're not six months, you're full term, and you're going to deliver this baby tonight. 
And so it was at that point that I looked at my wife and I said, is this what Get Ready is about? And uh, she said, I think it is. And so Josiah was born early uh, that Wednesday morning. And on Saturday, he came home with us. And we went to work and we did all of the things that we needed to do to make Joe a permanent part of our family. We hired a lawyer and we had a home study done, and, uh, and ultimately we went to court. And on December 31st of 2009, Josiah's adoption was complete. And I have a picture of us that day at court. Uh, that's at the Hamilton County Courthouse. Josiah is sound asleep. Beth Ann is giggling because she thinks we're going to get arrested for playing with the judge's gavel. <laughs> and... Uh, but the, the reality is Joe had no idea what was going on that day, but that day everything changed in his life and in ours. And, uh, and so anyway, that's the story of how I got an additional tax deduction in 2009. <laughs> I tell people I, I paid good money not to have any more kids, and then I paid good money to get one more. So uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been studying Romans chapter 8, and we've been looking at what it means to be in Christ. And we saw in week one that in Christ we are free. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then last week, Kevin was here and he taught uh, that for those who are in Christ, we are empowered. We've been given the Holy Spirit of God. And what I want you to see this morning is that if you are in Christ, you have been adopted. You are a child of God. Just as Josiah once was not my son, but now by adoption, he is fully my son. So you and I were once enemies of God, but now for those who are in Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And Paul's going to use these, this next um, section of Romans chapter 8 to answer a few questions for us. Who are the children of God? What are they like? What makes them distinct? What do they have to look forward to? And so let's read this entire passage together, and then let's go back and talk about what it means. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul begins this passage with the word, uh, therefore. And, uh, and I bet Kevin told you last week, and I say it whenever I come to this in the passage, whenever you see that word, therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? And, uh, and remember, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about uh, the, the fact that Paul is drawing from the previous chapters of the book of Romans, this letter to the church at Rome, and specifically, he's now drawing from what we studied last week about life in the Spirit. Spirit. Uh, he says, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now he's going to sum all of that up in verse 14. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So write this down if you're taking notes. This is the first point. God's children 
are led by his spirit. And these first three verses of this passage are giving us a clear indication of who God's children are. And if you've been around Genesis for a while, this is going to sound familiar to you. We've hit this several times, but the predominant thought today is that everyone is, is part of, of God's family, that we are all God's children specifically. But that is not a biblically accurate view. What Scripture tells us is that we are all God's creation. We are not all God's children. Because in John 1.12, we read, To all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The children of God are those who have received Christ, those who have believed in his name and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's how you become a child of God. And I realize that that, that may sound exclusive to you, like we're leaving people out to say that we're not all God's children. But I want to point out, this isn't exclusive at all because everyone is invited this isn't God playing favorites. It's your choice and it's my choice to receive the gift that he has offered to become his child. And so Paul says that one of the characteristics of those who have received this gift is that they are led by his spirit. You'll know who God's kids are because they'll not be doing what the flesh desires, but rather they'll be putting to death the flesh by the power of the spirit. Now, Again, last weekend was all about life by the Spirit, and so if you weren't here, I encourage you to go on to our podcast and listen to that. I think it'll give you greater clarity about what life by the Spirit means, but what I want to emphasize this morning is what it doesn't mean, because being led by the Spirit doesn't mean that we will never sin. Okay, I bet you've had a moment in your life, I know I have, where after some sinful thought or word or action, you've had this thought of, man, am I, am I even a Christian? Why would I do that? Why, why would I think that? Is, does God even consider me his child still? But John points out in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we are lying. We are liars. So, so even just saying that we have no sin is in and of itself a sin. But John tells us what to do when we sin. And listen, I think this is the greatest tool that you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ aside from the Holy Spirit, in putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And it's the tool of confession. John says, when you sin, that, that you are to confess it. And if you confess it, God will be faithful. And he will forgive us of that sin. And he will cleanse us of that sin. He will purify us of all unrighteousness. Because when you sin, there's something about saying it. There's something about confessing it to God, confessing it to another believer. And it puts to death the misdeeds of the body. Remember, we are striving to walk as Jesus walked, but we will never be sinless as Jesus was. We'll never be sinless, but we should sin less. And as we follow God's spirit and as we confess our misdeeds, that is exactly what happens. Our lives begin to look more and more like Jesus. And uh, that only happens as we follow the spirit where he's leading so the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. And then this, in verse 15, he says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there are a couple of points in that verse, but let's start at the beginning. Here's the first point. God's children are not slaves to fear. And you may remember if you were here in, in week one of this series that we talked about the law 
and, uh, and we define that as, as God's law. It's what God says we should do and what, what he says that we shouldn't do. And we talked about religion, and that's trying to make ourselves right with God by following the law. And we realize the desire to do what's right and good, but the fact is, in our own strength, we can't do it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so apart from Christ, we live in fear, always wondering, have I been good enough? Have I done enough for God to love me? Does the good outweigh the bad in my life? That's a, that's a fearful kind of theology. But what Paul is telling us here is that life by the Spirit, it isn't like that. God's children aren't slaves to fear because that law that we couldn't keep, Christ kept it, all of it. Remember we read earlier in Romans chapter 8 that in him all of the righteous requirements of the law were met. He met them all. And now all of that righteousness of Christ is credited to you if you are God's child. So we don't have to live day by day wondering if we're good enough for God to love us. Certainly, I want to do good. I, I want to live a life that is pleasing to God, but his love is not dependent on my goodness. If I am in Christ, then I have been given his spirit. And if I am led by his spirit, then I am a child of God. And if I am a child of God, then I am no longer a slave to fear. Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And so we're not, we're not slaves in Christ, we're sons. Now here's what's interesting about this phrase, adoption to sonship. Ladies, hear me clearly on this. You are not left out, okay? That, this wording is specific and it's for you too. In the Greek language, there are a few different words that can be translated as child. I want to show you a couple of them. Uh, the first one is this word, it's paideon, paideon, and this, this word means uh, specifically an infant or a small child, little child. It's the word that Jesus used in Matthew 19 when he says, let the little children come to me, paideon is the word that he used there. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. Back in verse 14, the word that's translated as children, in the NIV, it's the word huios, uh, and it means adult child. And specifically, it points to an adult son. This is a, a son who has the full responsibilities and the full inheritances of the father already bestowed on him. That's the word that Paul uses for you and I as children of God. And I think the NIV probably changed this word to child instead of son uh, so that women wouldn't feel left out. But what Paul is saying is not excluding women. Uh, what he's saying is that men and women alike are sons of God, and that's really important. It sounds funny, it sounds weird, but it's really important because in first century Rome, the daughter would not have received any inheritance, okay? Everything that was owned by the father would have gone to the son. He was the one who would inherit all the riches of the household. So Paul makes it clear here by using the word huios that all of God's children are sons, not in gender but because all of us equally receive the inheritance of God. Does that make sense? Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 and 29 that in Christ, there is no difference between male and female. If you're in Christ, you are no longer a slave to fear. You've been adopted to sonship. God has come to you and he has said, I want you to be my sons. I want to give you my inheritance. The children of God are led by the spirit of God. They are not slaves of fear. They're, they're adopted to sonship. And then this at the end of verse 15. 
He says, uh, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Here's point number three. God's children call him Father. Paul says, by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. And it's the same phrasing that's recorded of Jesus in Mark 14, the night that Jesus would be betrayed. We find him in the garden and he's praying. He's crying out to God and he said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And it's really the perfect illustration of what Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 8. Jesus is being led by the Spirit, and he's crying out to his Father. And Mark records the Aramic word, uh, which is Abba, and the Greek word, which is pater. Uh, both of them point towards that word father, the word we know as father. The word Abba was an intimate, sacred term used for God in prayers. Possibly the best English equivalent that we have for that word is, is the term Papa. Papa. And it, it definitely has that relational, uh, intimate feel to it, but there's also an understanding of authority, that this is, is someone who is above me, who is in charge of me. Uh, and then he uses the Greek word pater, which is similar to Abba. It's a, a bit of a more formal term, but still that relational element, that intimate element. And Paul is showing us with these words that as children of God, we have access to God as a child has access to his father. And here's what I think I want you to see uh, in the use of these terms. Anyone can pray to God, okay? Literally anyone, anywhere can go to God in prayer, but it is only the children of God who have been given the privilege of approaching him as father. I want to illustrate that with a, a story of something that happened to me a couple of years ago. I was working in a project in my garage. I had the garage door up. It was late at night. It was dark outside. And as I was working, I looked out uh, onto the road in front of my house, and I saw a young boy walking down the road. He was all alone, and I could just tell by the look on his face that, uh, that he was distressed. Something wasn't right. And, uh, and I could tell he was a little bit leery about interacting with me. I think he knew he probably shouldn't be talking to a stranger in the dark at night, but I don't think he, uh, he felt he had any other options. Because here's what had happened. His mom had dropped him off for a party at the south end of our neighborhood, but she had driven away before she realized that the party had been moved to a different location. No one was there. And so the little boy was there with no phone, no way to get in touch with his mom. It's dark. He's alone. And by the time he had gotten to my house, he had walked about two miles. He was headed home, and he was just going to walk home. And so, um, you know, he, he, he asked me something, can you help me, or I don't remember exactly what he said. We tried to call his mom, we didn't get an answer. I didn't know what to do. I, I knew he was uneasy towards me, I could feel that. I was uneasy because I certainly wouldn't want one of my kids interacting with a stranger in the dark. I, I didn't want him to trust me, if that makes any sense. And yet at the same time, I knew I was this kid's best hope, <laughs> his, his, uh, his best ride. He, he needed my help. And so he asked me for a ride home, and I gave him a ride home. Here's the thing. That, that kid didn't know me. He had no relationship with me. I'm sure he didn't fully trust me, but he had nowhere else to turn. And maybe for you, that describes your interactions with God perfectly. And maybe you found yourself in a tough situation or some terrible life circumstance, and at the end of your rope, you know, you've, you've cried out to God, but if you were really honest, you question if he even hears you. 
if he's even there, because you don't know him. You don't have that relationship with him to know his backstory, to know what he's like, to, to know him as father. But one of the most precious gifts that God gives to his children is, is the privilege to know him and approach him as father. Not fearful, not timid. I know that I can run into his arms at any moment because he is Abba, Pater. And if you are his child, you can know that in the darkest moments of your life, you can approach him and cry out to him, not, not as some distant, vague God, but as Father. Isn't that an amazing gift? He leads his children by his spirit. He makes us sons and not slaves, and he offers us this relationship with himself where we get to know him as Father. And then Paul says this in verses 16 and 17. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So here's point number four, the first half of it, is that God's children are heirs of God. And so I, I started this message by sharing how Josiah came into our family, and obviously he came in a different way than our girls did, and yet uh, he is equally my child. He is fully my son. Josiah bears my name, and he enjoys all of the benefits of being a Krauss, and there are many, okay? <laughs> Josiah sleeps under my roof. He eats at my table. He wrestles and dances and plays Spider-Man on my living room floor. He attacks his sisters in my yard, and uh, he, he, he knows that, that he's secure in my home. Why? Because he's my son, and it gives me great pleasure to share everything that I have with him. And one day, when Beth Ann and I go home to be with the Lord, Josiah will receive an inheritance from what we have, because he is now an heir and in the same way, when you submit to Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. You are called a son or a daughter of God, and you are given a place at his table, and you're given an inheritance. Listen to what, uh, what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 about our inheritance. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So because of our adoption, we have something to look forward to. There's more to come. It's our inheritance with Christ as children of God to his eternal presence. He gives, gives us a hope and a future in Christ. And You've heard us probably talk about Dan Spader here before, and uh, Dan is a, a, a Bible teacher. He's studied the life of Christ his whole life, and Dan refers to this passage as, as now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. These promises are for right now. If you are in Christ, they are yours, and they are for sure, but they're not yet because they won't be fully realized until Christ returns, because that's when our adoption will be complete. Okay, that's when we will be made like him in every way. But in the meantime, Paul gives us this last statement in verse 17. He says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now watch this. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So write this down. This is the second half of that fourth point, that we are heirs if we share in Christ's suffering. Now, I want to make it very clear. I don't know this for certain, what I'm about to say, but I do wonder if the Romans who originally received this message from Paul 
were viewing their suffering almost as a contradiction to their sonship. And I wonder if they ever thought, you know, if God loves me, then why am I experiencing all of this? If I'm his child, then why is all of this suffering occurring in my life? And maybe you felt that way at some point. But what Paul says to the Romans, and what I say to you and, and in this room this morning, is that suffering and sonship go hand in hand. Suffering and sonship go hand in hand. Steve mentioned earlier that today is Palm Sunday. And it marks the, the first day of the last week of Christ's life on earth. It's the day when Jesus traveled the path into Jerusalem where he would celebrate his final Passover with his disciples. And the Bible tells us that as he traveled that road that people went ahead of him and they took off their cloaks and they laid them on the robe and others went and they cut palm branches and they, they laid those on the road in front of him so that his colt would, would walk on the, the coats and on the branches. This was literally the royal treatment. This is what people would have done for a king. And indeed, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was the coming king they had been waiting for, and, and they were right. But they didn't realize the kind of king that Jesus came to be, because Jesus didn't come to destroy Rome. He came to destroy sin and death. He came to suffer and to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus understood what everyone else missed, that suffering and sonship go hand in hand. I bet many of you who have been around church uh, for any amount of time are, are familiar with Paul's words from Philippians 1, where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the part you've likely heard. But are you as familiar with his next words? In verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And if you're like me, you, you hear that first verse, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And man, we get charged up for that. I'd die for this. I'll die for it. But the question is, would you live for it? Would you suffer for it? Would you commit every day of the rest of your life to fruitful labor? That's Paul's heart. To die is gain, yes. But until that happens, I'm going to labor. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to produce fruit. Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And this adoption that we've received and the inheritance we've been offered is now, but not yet. It's ours now, and it will be fully recognized when Christ comes again. But until then, there's work to be done, and God's kids don't just sit on their hands waiting for Christ to come again. We pursue the Father's glory by bearing much fruit. We labor for the name of Christ. We suffer for the benefit of others because we know that suffering and sonship go hand in hand. So God's children are led by his spirit. They are no longer slaves to fear. They call him father and they are heirs of God and they share in Christ's suffering. I wonder this morning, does that describe you? Does that describe your life? And if not, what is it that's holding you back? I want you to, to bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. I want to spend some time in prayer, but I, I want you to reflect first because I imagine there are some here today who are not in Christ. You're living life on your own strength and trying to be good enough to make it to heaven. The problem is God doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be holy and you can't get there on your own. But here's the good news. In God's great love, he has given you his son. He has offered you his spirit and the guidance of his word. If you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that can happen today. I would love to talk to you more about that after the service. But I suspect there are others here today and 
you've received Christ and the Spirit has been leading, but if you were being honest, you haven't been following. And maybe for you today, it's, it's time to take this seriously and to begin putting the flesh to death and living into your identity as an adopted child of God. It starts with confession. And so, Father, that's the heart that we come to you with this morning is a heart of confession, a heart of thankfulness for sure, Father, that, that you have called us sons and daughters of you. But, Father, a heart of confession because I think there are probably ways that all of us could say we haven't fully lived into that identity. Maybe we, we haven't been listening or following your spirit. Perhaps we haven't had our hearts fully set on the grace that will be given when you, you return, when Christ returns. And so, Father, we, we haven't been living as heirs of something great. Father, whatever it is this morning, I pray for your spirit's conviction. I pray for your correction. I pray that you would draw us back into the identity of Christ, that we would pursue it, that we would live into our identity as adopted kids of God. Father, would you help us in this by your spirit? Thank you for your word. Thank you for its guidance, Lord. We love you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.